Okay, people. Uh, the Bible and the way it talks about women. Um, thank you for the postings, which were, uh, as, as they've been every week, um, thoughtful and um, insightful, penetrating. Um, but also this week, um, with quite a lot of hurt um, and uh, anger. Uh, and I'm uh, aware of the way in which uh, lots of uh, women have been subject to abuse um, in the church and in the home uh, and in society uh, on the basis of things it says in the Bible. Uh, and and so I uh, recognise that, that we do this study with that in the background um, and uh, wanting to honour one another uh, and um, in nothing that I say do I want to um, be putting anybody down or, or not recognising the, uh, the, the pain and the anger that, um, that many people come uh, to these scriptures with um, and not only women, men too, um, because, um, because men have also been um, deprived by, as a result of the way in which women have been treated, especially in the church. So I'm on page 40 where it says the place of women in scripture. Uh, I'm going to make some comments on uh, texts, on the kind of texts that I encouraged you to read. These are some of my comments about them. Um, and then some comments of a general kind arising out of that, uh, and then I'll come and uh, talk about some of the, um, the things that people said in their postings. So first, a cross-section of the scriptural material. Uh, number one, uh, women share in God's image um, with, with men. That's the first thing that's uh, uh, ever said about the subject. When God says, let's make humankind in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Um, and later on, in chapter 5, um, it declares that when God created humankind, he made, them, he made them in the image of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them humankind when they were created. With the implication that the story that follows is then a story about um, humankind made in God's image. It's not the case that the image of God was lost when sin came into uh, the world. In the way in which God created humankind, then uh, only when you have men and women together do you have the image of God realized. That while um, the marriage relationship is one particular embodiment of that, Genesis 1 isn't uh, just talking about the marriage relationship, it's talking about men and women in general. Um, and so it's the case more generally that it's when you have the image of God, uh, that you have the image of God represented when you have both men and women there. Uh, and 
for me, that's the fundamental reason why, uh, to speak in Church of England, in, in, in Anglican terms, uh, women have to be ordained. Uh, and the reason why uh, it's, it's uh, any um, leadership in ministry in the church that's exercised only by men is bound to be inhuman. Because it can't, be, by definition, be representing the image of God. It is quite extraordinary uh, that the guys who wrote Genesis 1, male guys, I presume, priestly guys, it's usually reckoned, um, said this, and some people read it with disbelief. They can't have meant that men and, men and women uh, were, equally, were equal in that kind of way. Well, if they didn't mean it, they shouldn't have said it. Because that's what they, even if they didn't realize what they were doing, um, what they did was make clear that by God's creation, um, man, and, man and woman were not complementary in the sense that the wicked sense that complementary notion is used in some circles, the complementary nature of men and women being that the men exercise authority and the women accept it. A fine kind of complementarity, that is. Um, It follows from that, that in the Song of Songs, another of the passages that rightly uh, several people said, well, this has been one of the passages I'd have wanted to draw our attention to when we think about the role of women. Um, the Song of Songs is remarkable for the way in which it uh, pictures the egalitarian nature of the relationship between um, the two people who, uh, whose feelings for one another um, it describes. Uh, and it's noteworthy how uh, in the Song of Songs, it's the woman who speaks more often than the man, um, and uh, it's the uh, and that the woman is able to take the initiative in the relationship. Um, I'm amused at the way in which I have the not I'm you know fortunately I'm not involved in this dating game, or this proposing game, but I have the impression that it's still assumed that the man ought to take the initiative. Well, that's not what is the case in the Song of Songs. Um, and you can quite often see the same uh, phenomenon, actually, in Genesis itself, even when things have gone wrong, uh, that, that people like Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel are not people that their husbands can mess with, I tell you. Uh, women uh, are able to prophesy, uh, as Miriam does, and as Huldah, uh, the prophetess whom Josiah um, goes to consult, has consulted in 2 Kings 23, as they illustrate... Um, and women are able to lead worship in 1 Corinthians 11. The negative side to 1 Corinthians 11 is often uh, what people emphasize. Uh, but the positive side from which, which Paul takes for granted is that women are leading um, in prayer uh, and in teaching and uh, uh, prophesying uh, in the Corinthian church. Uh, and what he needs to do is to cope with some things that have happened as a result of that. But he never questions, uh, goes back on the appropriateness of the notion that women should be leading in prayer and prophecy, which would cause a bit of a stir in a few churches that I know and probably some that you know. Um, women thus uh, accompany Jesus uh, in his ministry. So in Luke 8, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, as well, as well as some women who had been cured of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. Joanna, the wife of Herod Stuart Khuzar, doesn't say whether she asked him his opinion, his permission or not. 
and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their resources. Uh, women are engaged in mission, uh, Romans chapter 16, verse 7. Uh, where Paul uh, says, uh, he's giving a list of people whose greetings, uh, to whom he wishes to give greetings. Um, and he says, uh, <coughs> Greet Adronicus and Junia, my relatives, who were in prison with me. They are prominent among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Now, here's a woman who might be called Junia. Um, which is not spelled J-U-N-I-O-R-I-O-R, but J-U-N-I-A, uh, who is called one of the apostles, so that all women apostles. Uh, the margin of the, my, NRSV, my NRSV notes that instead of reading Junior, some manuscripts read Junias, which turns her into a guy, which is very convenient for some people. Other ancient authorities read Julia, which might be more likely. Maybe, but there's some, you can see in the very way that the manuscript tradition has worked, one suspects uh, some of the process whereby the uh, openness to ministry of women in the early church has been kind of closed down. Women are equal in, equal in privilege and responsibility to men. Um, in Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy keeps making explicit that the things that it says don't just apply to the guys, they apply to the women as well. So, uh, whereas others of the laws will simply talk about uh, the men or the boys, the, the, uh, the sons, um, uh, the fathers, Deuteronomy will keep make explicit, making explicit that it's mothers and fathers, or that it's fathers and mothers, that it's sons and daughters, that it's men and women. Uh, it is both sexes upon whom the requirements um, of the instructions in Deuteronomy um, are incumbent. They're obliged to obey them. But also they get the, the privileges that, that when it's a question of rejoicing, then Deuteronomy makes explicit that the, that the rejoicing of the, of the festival is to be one that involves the daughters as well as the sons, the mothers as well as the fathers, the women as well as the men. Um, so in that sense, they are equal members um, of, uh, equally involved in the faith of Israel. Um, and Paul's equivalent statement um, is uh, that in Christ there is neither no longer Jew or Greek, there is no longer slave or free, there is no longer male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. Now he's not abolishing the difference between male and female, uh, presumably. Um, he's not abolishing the difference between Jew or Greek or slave or free. But he is saying that there's only one uh, basis upon which you relate to God, and the basis upon which you relate to God is nothing to do with what sex you belong to any more than what social class you belong to or what race you belong to. Everybody comes to God on the same basis. That's true um, in uh, one strand of the way in which both Old Testament and New Testament work. Um, there seems to me to be no... Um, qualitative difference between the way the New Testament works and the way the Old Testament works. Um, there, there is a testimony to that egalitarian relationship between them in Old Testament and in New Testament and the stuff that we'll come to in a minute which works the other way, both in Old Testament and in New Testament. Uh, 
back, uh, back, back to Genesis to chapter 2, which has been um, used as a basis for saying that from creation there was a, sub- a subordination um, of women to men uh, or simply of wives to husbands, but, but I think without basis. Uh, in the second story, the second, the second account of creation is very different from the first. Uh, and what it looks as if you've got is two parallel accounts um, which, which give you different pictures of how things were at the beginning. Um, and both of them, I would say, are pictures. Not from neither of them can you um, work out what the camcorder would have caught if it had been there. If they're not that kind of history. Um, and, and so the fact that in a superficial sense they give you very different pictures of the process is neither here nor there. The question is what sort of um, vision, understanding of God's creation in our, given our particular concern of God's creation of men and women, what kind of uh, understanding or vision of the creation of men and women is there? Is there any difference in the second from the first? Um, and not really it seems to me. Uh, in the second, the man is created first, the woman is created second. Uh, and it's been argued that that shows that the woman is, is inferior to, to the man. Um, but whoever wanted the um, Mark I of a computer program, when you could have the Mark II. Um, I mean, you know, and very obviously, the, um, the first uh, version here is kind of experimental. It hasn't even got internal plumbing, um, whereas the second version has. <laughs> So you can produce just as good an argument for the idea that um, the woman is being created second makes her superior as you can for the idea that the woman being created second makes her inferior. Um, Obviously, or perhaps obviously, uh, I'm not even sure myself, my argument is a a jocular one, uh, but, uh, but in another sense it's a serious one. You can just as easily produce a case for saying um, that the woman is superior because of being second, as you can uh, a case for her, pe- for her being inferior. She is designed to be a help uh, for the man, but that doesn't prove that she's inferior either, because as lots of feminist exegesis has pointed out, if you look to see when anybody else is described as a helper within the Old Testament, the person who's most often described as a helper is God. So there, being somebody's helper does not indicate that you're inferior any more than being created second indicates that you're inferior. What the story makes clear is that the man isn't going to be any good on his own. Why isn't he? Well, that's what we can see all sorts of reasons. I mean, he obviously can't cook. But then my experience nowadays is that the women can't cook either. Um, uh, and, uh, it's, uh, but, and it, it doesn't note that it doesn't say that he was lonely. Now, we, we because of our concern about... Um, those kind of things, those kind of questions. When we see that um, uh, that uh, God is God declaring it's not good that the man should be alone, we think in kind of relational terms. We think that it's good not good for the not for the man not to be lonely, which is of course true. But it's not the uh, point that that um, leads into that lies behind the creation of the woman. The point is that, as in the first creation story. Uh, the, the, jo- the reason why God creates human- humanity is in order to run the world for God. In chapter 1, um, the man and the woman together are commissioned to subdue the earth. Isn't that interesting? This, this earth is good 
and yet it's going to need some subduing. I mean, the lions will keep eating rabbits. Somehow you've got to stop them doing that. Uh, the uh, hum- humanity is created in order to um, bring about peace in the world. Well, thank you very much. Well, I'm glad that I wasn't Adam and Eve then. That's another good reason why I wasn't back there at the beginning. It was quite a job that they were given, really. They're there to run the world for God. The way in which the second story puts it is that they're created um, to, to serve the garden. Um, the translation in the... You know, the usual translation is that, that, they are, that, that the human being is created to keep uh, the garden. But it, it, the word that's used is the word for to serve. Um, and that now reminds me um, uh, of um, Bob Dylan's comment um, that there were no kings in the Garden of Eden. There was, there was, and it's another way of saying there was no authority structure of any kind in the Garden of Eden. There was serving that had to go on, but it wasn't that any human being served other human beings. There were no lords and masters and, uh, who, de- who decided things and other people um, who did what they were told in the Garden of Eden. Um, the, there was serving, there were servants, but the serving was all being done by the human beings um, to the ground, for instance. Paradoxically, they were both in authority over the earth, and also there to serve the earth. So there was an authority, a hierarchical uh, structure about life in the Garden of Eden, but it wasn't one in which some human beings um, had headship over other human beings. It was one in which all human beings were were in authority, and all human beings were there to serve. So the first human being is created there to serve the garden. Um, This is quite a big task when you think about it. Uh, and so God says, well, it's no good in being on his own to do that. He needs somebody else. And he doesn't just need, need one other person. He needs loads of other people. But the trouble is, he's no good. He may be fine, Adam, but he can't have babies. Um, and, uh, and so the um, second human being is created as somebody who, is, who will be able, with uh, Adam, to be able to bring the babies into the world that Adam certainly couldn't do on his own. Um, the basic um, conviction then that underlies the creation of the woman in Genesis 2 uh, is that she'll be able to bear the children. Now, this is not what you want to know, um, and it's not often what people say about Genesis 2, so I assure you again that I am slightly heretical, or, yeah, in, in what I say about it, because usually what people say about Genesis 2 is that isn't it lovely that this man and the woman are together and all that kind of thing, and, and that's all true, no doubt. Uh, but it's not actually Genesis' concern. Uh, Genesis is concerned with the question, how on earth um, is the garden going to be served? How is the world going to be run by God? Um, there is then this, there is a, an understanding of a romantic um, relational relationship between uh, man and woman in the Old Testament, but that's what you go to the Song of Songs for. It's not what you go to Genesis for, in my heretical opinion. But I'm right. But 10% of what I say is wrong. The trouble is I don't know which 10%. But it's not that bit. (laughs) The significance of bearing children to womanhood in Genesis, not as the only thing about woman, but as one of the things uh, about womanhood, uh, comes out then in chapter 3, where the consequences 
um, of um, humanity going wrong uh, is, is, uh, come in the area um, of her womanhood and motherhood. Chapter 3, verse 16. Um, I'll come back to say some more about that in a minute. Um, and the significance of Eve's capacity to bear children is then expressed in when uh, Adam na names his wife Eve. Because she was the mother of all living, uh, the, the, the name Eve is very close to the Hebrew word for life or living. The first thing then that um, happens the outside of the Garden of Eden um, is that Adam and Eve um, sleep together, as we put it in our euphemism. Um, Cain, uh, uh, Genesis's euphemism is the man knew his wife Eve. Sometimes people say, oh, this is a very profound thing, that sex is a very deep way of knowing. And no doubt it is, but that's not, what gen that's not what's going on uh, when the Old Testament talks in those terms. Um, uh, because it's simply, it's euphemism uh, for having sex. Uh, it comes quite often for, for quite casual sex, is referred to as knowing. Um, so uh, Adam and Eve have sex, and she conceives and bears Cain, saying, I've produced a man with the help of the Lord. Uh, and next she bears his, his, his brother Abel. She begins to fulfill her role as a human being uh, by bearing children. Uh, she's doing the same. Uh, Cain has sex with his wife, and she conceives and bears Enoch. Um, and there's more talk of that later in the chapter. Uh, at the end of the chapter, Adam knew, Adam knew his wife again. She bore a son and named him Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another child instead of Abel, because Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. The story then of um, the beginnings of... Um, the human race is told uh, and brought into close connection with, uh, with the importance of motherhood. And the same is true in, in Luke chapters 1 and 2. Uh, the account of the uh, beginning of Jesus' story as Luke tells it places great emphasis on the fact that Elizabeth is at last able to have a, children, a child against all the odds. And, that, and, and unless Elizabeth has a child, there'll be no John the Baptist, obviously. And Mary has a baby, even more miraculously. And unless Mary has a baby, there'll never be a Jesus, obviously. Yes, but I don't want to get bogged down too much in questions because once we start doing too much, I'll never get, we'll never get out of it. So, let's see, if it's a quick one, okay. Where, where did Cain and Abel's wife... <laughs> That's Pentateuch. <laughs> OT501. <laughs> I'm sorry? <laughs> what, what, was it? what did she say? I don't want to pay another <laughs> That's a very good argument. <laughs> um. <laughs> um, it would take too long. How many people would like me to answer this question? Oh, you'll do. Okay. Um, I need to. I need to. I need to talk some more about the, the nature of these stories, which it's an edifying experience. Well, I think it's an important thing for you to know about, even if you, especially if you're not going to go do Pentateuch. Um, 
in general, in the stories at the beginning of Genesis. There are, there, are, there are various clues in these stories at the beginning of Genesis that you're not just picturing, as I put it just now, what the camcorder would have caught if it had been there. And, and, and your, question, your question is one of the indications. The differences between Genesis 1 and 2 that I was just talking about is another indication. The number of years these guys lived is another indication. Another indication is that the kind of um, way in which Genesis 1 to 3 particularly tells the story with the talk about a tree of knowledge of good and evil and a tree of life and a serpent that talks and all sorts of things like that. You don't get the impression that you're reading about the kind of world in which we live. Maybe you are, but at least it's worth, it's worth trying. Yeah, well, I mean, you may have snakes in your back garden. But yeah, I don't know. Um, but, but it's worth thinking about another way of thinking about it. Um, and I think it's, it's significant that the other end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, is the other place where it talks about things like a tree of life and so on, strange beasts. Uh, and, and it's significant that at both ends of the Bible, when nobody, um, for part, at least for part of it, nobody was there to see what happened, um, is, is, is expressed in terms of symbol rather than of literal reality. Of course, there were human beings by definition. When Adam and Eve were there, there was human beings, and they could have told their children and so on, down and down and down and down and down to whenever Genesis was written. But for the first six and a half, I mean, five and a half days in Genesis 1, there was nobody there. So they could only have known about it if God told them, but it doesn't say God told me. It just tells a story. Now, um, in, in 2 Samuel chapter 5, I beg your pardon, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, Um, there is a story that belongs in the aftermath of... You said it was a short question. You see, I got trapped. I got beguiled. You were a talking snake, and I was Eve. Where's the apple gone? Um, where am I? I have got lost, you see, as well. You ate it, yeah. <laughs> oh, somebody did, yeah. <laughs> she ate it. Um... After the um, David, Bathsheba, Uriah business, the prophet Nathan comes to David and he says, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he, which he had brought. He brought it up and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his meagre fare and drink from his cup and lie in his bosom and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveller to the rich man and he was loath to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared that for the guests who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. Now, psychological interpretation, please. It's one of those things like transference or projection or one of those things. Not, it's not either of those two, is it? But it's one of those. You know what I mean? Um, come on! Isn't there a word name for it in that big book? <laughs> It isn't really projection. Well, perhaps, okay, anyway, it's, you can see there's a psychological thing going on here, that da David is really angry with what has been described as actually as what he has done, but he, he doesn't yet realise, as it were, that it's what he has done. David's anger was great to kindle against the man. He said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, gotcha. 
actually says, you are the man. Because, because the parable Nathan has told is an account of what David has done, but it's not a literal account of what David has done. It's a parable, it's like Jesus' parables, but most of Jesus' parables aren't picturing something that once happened. Sorry if this is another heresy, but I'm sure Beaton told you this. You know, there wasn't necessarily a good Samaritan ever. It's a story. It's a fictional story. But this is a, this is a factual story, a historical story, but it's told in the form of a parable. Now, that means that we've got two accounts of what David did. We've got a literal account in the previous chapters of what David did to you with Uriah and Bathsheba and all that. And then we've got the parabolic account of what Nathan says to David. And it shows how you can use a parable in order to tell a historical story. If we'd only got Nathan's parable, we wouldn't know what had happened. We'd know the kind of thing that had happened, but we wouldn't know the actual thing that had happened. And, and so my perspective is that in the opening chapters of Genesis, you're reading the kind of thing that happened, a parabolic account of what happened, rather than a historical account. And one of the reasons for that is that if God had inspired the author of Genesis with a historical account, nobody would have understood it anyway. So God, in his mercy, inspired a parabolic account so that it could be understood whatever century you lived in. And the way in which God inspired that, I think, uh, is by inspiring the authors of Genesis to take stories that people familiar, were familiar with out of their culture and make this parabolic story this what, of what God had been doing in creating the world um, out of the, out of the uh, stories that people were familiar with. And that explains why um, you, can't, you can't press the details of the story, like where did Cain uh, get his wife from, um, because, because that's to make the same mistake as, uh, as people make when they try to press the details of Jesus' parables. Um, you need to be asking all the way along, in this, in this bit of the story, what's the point that's being made? Um, and the question of where Cain got his wife from is, is a bit of the decorative detail that you don't have to ask too many questions about because that's just not part of the point. Okay? Don't come back at me because that's quite an important principle for... Uh, understanding what's going on. It, 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 yeah, yeah, go on. Um, I understand what you're saying. I guess, I mean, I'm not opposed to it. Um, the, have you heard of Kenneth Hannon, like the answers from Genesis guy that looks like Abraham Lincoln? <laughs> uh, I might have, just about. Okay, well, I'm just curious what you would say to people who are answering, like, salvation issues from Genesis, like, where did he get his wife and did the blood really happen and all that stuff? Like, what would you say to him? I don't, mean, I, don't what you mean, I don't know what you mean by answering salvation issues. Or doing a he thinks that if Genesis isn't literal, then Christianity is meaningless, and Jesus wasn't. Oh, okay, right. Well, that, that's, uh, I'd say that's illogical. <laughs> yeah. uh, <laughs> it doesn't follow. Point one, it doesn't follow. Point two, the reason it's, I don't believe in Jesus because of Genesis. I believe in Genesis because of Jesus. Um, it's Jesus that gives me the Bible. Um, and, and so I, I accept Genesis, as it were, because Jesus accepted it, because Jesus gives it to me. But that, that doesn't fix anything about, about the nature of the historical story it's telling. It needs to be a basically historical story um, from a theological point of view, because there are, at least there are some things in the New Testament that depend upon its being a basically historical story. As in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Um, as sin came into the world through one man, so... Uh, grace comes into the world through one man. 
Paul's argument um, becomes slightly embarrassing. It doesn't be, Paul's argument doesn't fall down, but, but his argument becomes a bit embarrassing if there, if there wasn't an actual creation and an actual act of disobedience that put the whole world into a mess. But that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean it needs to be a literal historical uh, account of Genesis. Okay, account in Genesis. Okay, any more than that? You have to pay 12,000. Um, oh, sorry, whatever it was. Or 1,200. Yes. And within about three weeks, uh, I shall post on my Fuller webpage a thing called... Um, Genesis for Everyone, um, which will give you those answers in a bit more uh, organised form. Um, unless I die before then, which, well, you see, yeah, yeah, it says in Je you have to be careful about saying these things. Who knows? Ecclesiastes and James agree. Who knows? The Lord might take me tomorrow. Um, the Lord might come back tomorrow. That would be exciting, wouldn't it? <laughs> well now come on now. Where, where was I well, I must have been somewhere in all this stuff oh yes okay yeah I got it okay I was at the end of section 2 um, uh, just referred to uh, the importance of in, in the New Testament of, uh, of the motherhood of Elizabeth and Mary um, and then I've mentioned there how um, in Proverbs 31 that the woman the woman is in authority over the household uh, and and you, you, you need to always to remember that in, the, in, in a traditional culture context like that, they haven't gone through the process that we went through in, uh, in the West uh, in the 19th century, really, whereby the life of the house and the life of work came to be two separate realms. The life of the house became the woman's work and the life outside became the man's work. And the life of the house became unimportant and the life outside became the one that counted. That was invented in the West in the 19th century. Uh, it, it, doesn't have an, it's not, it doesn't have an equivalent way of thinking in traditional societies where home and work uh, are much more likely to be together, uh, where the father is much more less involved with the family and the mother is much more involved in the, in the work uh, of the family business, as it were, um, where there isn't a division of roles between men and women of the kind that became customary in the 19th or 20th centuries um, and in the West, and, and where what goes on in the home is not downgraded in the way that it's been in our culture. Um, and so for the woman to have the kind of authority that she has with regard to the household and in the work that she does in Proverbs 31 is saying something really significant in keeping with the way that Genesis 1 and 2 describe the position of the woman. There was something somebody said about Proverbs 31. Oh, yes, I think somebody said, kind of it scared the pants off them, really, uh, because of the expectations that it set up. Um, and uh, I can see that, but that, that's always the other, that's, that's inevitably, I think, isn't it, the other side of being given opportunities, being given possibilities, um, is, uh, is itself kind of scary. Section three, then, of this sheet. Um, the, the woman is involved in, in leading the man astray in Genesis 3. 
Uh, Proverbs talks about the um, about men leading women astray. Um, Hosea one to three presupposes in the Goma story um, somebody capable of leading men astray. Uh, on the other hand, uh, the scriptures also describe women being faithful when men aren't. Um, Deborah is a great example uh, of the, the greatest of the judges um, uh, who, in her, in her faithfulness, who doesn't have the weakness um, of the uh, male judges. All, all the male judges have something a bit weird about them, something sad uh, about them, something sinful about them. Um, Deborah is the great um, unsolid hero of the book of Judges. Um, and uh, again, as some people pointed out in their postings, uh, it's, it was the women who stuck by Jesus uh, at the cross, and it was women to whom Jesus appeared uh, on Resurrection Day. Um, and so any implication that you could draw from, from Genesis 3 about uh, women, w- womanhood being inclined to unfaithfulness and to lead men astray needs to have set alongside it that other thing, uh, which, which makes one uh, wonder whether, that's a euphemism for saying, I think, I'm sure, um, the, which sex the person happens to be uh, to whom the, snake, whom the snake approaches may be totally insignificant. It's, there's, there's not a point there um, about gender, maybe. And in any, in any case, as somebody points, pointed out, I think, in their posting, the question in, one question in Genesis 3 is, what is Adam doing when Eve is having this seminar with the snake? Because I've always pictured that as Adam isn't there. You know, the snake ca- gets, ca- catches Eve when he's on her own. But actually, Adam is there at the end of Genesis 2, and Adam is there when Eve um, takes the fruit because um, she offers some fruit to him and he accepts it. So he is there. If he's supposed to be exercising authority, he's not doing it. Uh, if they're simply supposed to be, as I believe, together, um, in, as, as, God's, as God's man and woman, then he's not fulfilling his role either. There isn't really much evidence thus there for um, uh, blaming, Eve, for reckoning that Eve is, is, is blameworthy uh, in a way that Adam um, isn't. She, uh, both of them experience um, consequences, um, downfalls, punishments, as a result uh, of what happens. Um, and she the, the Eve will experience that um, in the area that, as it were, is her speciality. Uh, um, I will greatly increase your pangs in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. The words that are used there don't suggest the phys- uh, physical pain of childbirth. It's difficult to see how childbirth could ever have been without pain, given the extraordinary strain that it puts uh, upon the body. And that isn't necessarily a, a, a bad thing. C.S. Lewis says somewhere that um, part of the joy of doing something like climbing a mountain or digging in the garden is that at the end of the day, you feel a kind of ache in your bones. And that's uh, uh, an indication of the satisfyingness and the worthwhileness of what you did. Um, and uh, it wouldn't be surprising if it, part of the goodness of creation um, was the, uh, a degree of the kind of effort, strain, even pain involved in childbearing. 
Um, okay. Um, uh, okay. And so am I, so what have I got to say? Except that I remember Anne telling me uh, when, she was, um, when she was doing, um, uh, what do you call them, residences in obstetrics, um, how, again, people, that, that, that uh, Nigerian women that they had in, that were capable of uh, having children much more easily than uh, Anglo uh, women. And so there are all sorts of complicated questions, I think, about the, uh, the experience of childbirth. But uh, yeah, I'm only a man, so I'm going to shut up. Um, but what I can say is that the words that are used, the way that, that this uh, pain of childbearing is, is described... It does not suggest that it's referring to the physical pain of childbirth. The words that are used are not words you'd use, that you would use about physical pain. It's words that you would use about emotional pain. Um, and if you then read Genesis in light of, 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 that, of those two lines, um, I will greatly increase your pangs in childbearing, in pain you shall bring forth children, you can see that Genesis, full of, Genesis is full of accounts uh, of women uh, bringing forth children in pain. Uh, arguably Eve immediately does it when she has two children and then she watches one of them murder the other. Could there be a greater pain of child in childbearing than that? Um, but the pain of getting pregnant um, and uh, the pain of uh, conflict um, over childbearing and, and pain in relationships between children uh, is a theme that runs through the whole of Genesis. Um, so what Looks as, this is, looks as if this is doing, is talking about the way in which the experience of motherhood will be spoilt, not, not merely that um, childbearing itself will become painful. Um, I guess I under, always understood that in light of like, man's struggle as well, mm. you know, of mm. physical mm. nature, mm. so female as a physical nature, would you say that's the same for, or a misinterpretation of uh, man's struggle with the sweat of his brow, Oh yes, because the, 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 it's a very a closely related word. Is you, when it, the, the word for toil is closely related to those words for pangs with regard to the woman, and so we know ourselves how um, the problem, as it were, about work isn't merely the, the fact, not in fact, hardly at all, that you come home physically tired. It's that your work is frustrating. You can't do the thing you want to do. Um, so it's uh, yeah, it's a it's a much broader thing than merely a physical thing. Yeah. Uh, number five, uh, a result of sin in the world is that the woman is under the man's authority. It goes on from um, the pain of childbearing to your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Um, and um, I, I, am, I am astonished actually um, at the way in which it's, it seems to me to be it's so obvious that headship comes in here that I can't understand why people can't see it. This is the point at which headship starts. It's, it, it comes into the world as a result of there being sin in the world. That's when um, it's, it's, it's as a result of sin being in the world um, that uh, the husband will rule over the wife. Uh, now, with the other consequences of the fall... Um, we don't assume that you simply have to accept um, the, those consequences. Those consequences are going to happen. They're even, in a sense, God's will. Um, and yet, uh, whatever is the meaning you attach to the, um, 
suffering of women involved in being, being mothers, we don't say, well, we can't have social workers or epidurals or anything like that because that's all a result of the fall. We assume that we can fight against it. And I assume the same ought to be true about patriarchy. This is where headship, this is where patriarchy starts. Uh, but that's actually an invitation to fight against it, um, but also a warning about how tough the fight will be. The, um, the 1 Timothy passage, about which we can talk about a bit more later on, then I would then put under this heading, and, and so also some, some things that follow in Old Testament and New Testament. It's uh, in line with this assumption, with the patriarchal assumption, the headship assumption, uh, that God chooses men to be priests in Israel. And it's in, li it's, it's in line with that, that Jesus chooses men as his 12 disciples, and gives those 12 male disciples the great commission to go and evangelize the world. Um, and what you have there um, is uh, a tension that will run through the scriptures in which God and Jesus work with um, the consequences of sin being in the world. I was going to say in the same way as we do. Not in the same way as we do, but they too have to work with it. Uh, Jesus does not attempt to be revolutionary about everything. Jesus says nothing about slavery. As, um, I'll talk about that more in two weeks' time, I think. Uh, uh, Jesus, do, Jesus does um, have close relationships with and encourage the ministry of women, but he doesn't have six male disciples uh, and six female disciples. Um, because in various ways, in Old Testament and New Testament, uh, God, Jesus, Paul, everybody else, work with the realities of situations. Paragraph 6, uh, after the beginnings uh, of when God's doing his most creative thing, it tends to be the case that women semi-disappear from the story. Um, that happens in Genesis, uh, when, for instance, the genealogies keep talking about the way that the, a man has a son. Excuse me, what's happened to the woman who was thought to be necessary to this process? Um, it's, no, it's not uh, invariable. Uh, in, uh, when we come to the edge of the Abraham story at the end of chapter 11, um, then, uh, the, then Sarah, for instance, and other of the wives involved gets mentioned. But, it, but it's, it, it, the, what happens in Genesis then um, is repeated uh, at the time of the Exodus and repeated again in the New Testament. That is, when God is doing his newly creative thing, then uh, an egalitarian understanding of the roles of men and women um, emerges. And, and so at the time of the Exodus you find it with Miriam uh, leading and prophesying alongside Moses um, and with the, in the New Testament with the prominence of women uh, in the Jesus story and, the, and in the story in Acts. Uh, but then in uh, later on in the Old Testament story and then later on in the New Testament story and even more in Christian history, uh, the women uh, disappear from the story or semi-disappear from the story. Um, because the story carries on working itself out in the context um, of uh, Genesis 3.16. In light of that, um, some of the stories in Old Testament and New Testament reveal um, women's need of strategies to cope with the situation. As if women needed to be told that, because women have been using strategies all the way along. 
And so uh, Ruth is a story of two women using strategies, finding ways to live in a patriarchal world. And Esther is a story uh, of uh, a woman using strategies in order to bring about the deliverance of the Jewish people. Being realistic uh, about the way things are in the world. Um, in, in the book of Esther, Vashti is the radical feminist, but it doesn't get her anywhere. Uh, Esther is the conservative feminist who gets somewhere. Now, if you, ha- if you can't help but be a radical feminist, and I can tell from the postings that some of you can't help that, you can't help it. That's fine. You know, um, but... Um, and radical people get certain things achieved. Radical people get some things achieved. Conservative people get other things achieved. That's the, question, that, that's the issue that Barak is having to battle with. Um, and uh, women uh, need strategies to cope um, in, in a patriarchal world. And in a way, Paul is exercising a strategy like that in what he says in Ephesians 5, which often troubles people, but I think um, ought to trouble uh, men for, the reason, for reasons that it doesn't, and women ought to find it a, kind of, a funny kind of encouragement. Ephesians 5 tells um, wives to be subject to their husbands. Incidentally, the Old Testament never tells uh, wives to be subject to their husbands. Never tells wives to obey their husbands. Ephesians 5 tells wives to be subject in in everything to their husbands. What does subjection look look like? Well, Paul goes on to tell the Ephesians what subjection looks like. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her in order to make her holy by cleansing her with the washing of water by the word so as to present the church to himself in splendor without a spot or a wrinkle or anything of the kind. Yes, so that she may be holy and without blemish. Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as they do their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hates his own body, but he nourishes and tenderly cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, because we are members of his body. And then Ephesians quotes the uh, Genesis verses. Um, Here then is a model for how um, marriage is to work. It it works by a husband giving himself for his wife. And what a, a wife has to do is to submit to her husband. And what she submits to, her, what, and what she submits to is to her husband um, dying, for, giving his life for her, dying for her. Because that's what the husband's, in, in marriage, the husband's vocation is to die for his wife, and the wife's vocation is to let him do that. This seems to me to be an astonishingly clever way of, subver- of subverting the understanding uh, of the marriage relationship in the culture. Uh, and, and it's kind of paradoxical and sad that... People assume that Paul is reaffirming the standard understanding of the marriage relationship in the culture. That is, the man, the man decides what to do and the woman goes, uh, says, yes, okay, dear. Uh, when it's nothing like that at all. The husband's job is to die for the wife and the wife's submission therefore consists in letting him do that. You, you couldn't subvert the cultural understanding more than that. Well, that about the passages. Um, let, me, let me just make my comments at the bottom here and then we'll see uh, where, what happens. My comments. 
First, Mark 10, 1-9 is a hermeneutical key to Scripture. Um, it's one of Jesus' keys to understanding the Old Testament Scriptures. When the Pharisees come and ask him about divorce, um, and he says, what does the Bible say? Because he's an evangelical. Um, and uh, the Pharisees say, uh, it says that um, you, can, you have to give your woman uh, a certificate of divorce, which obviously means that it, it approves of divorce. Jesus says, what else does the Bible say? Um, because, of, and, and that, um, uh, because of your hardness of heart, Moses wrote the commandment for you. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. The, so here we have a, a, a neat example within the Torah of an issue which people pointed out in their postings is the issue here. What do you do with it when Scripture's got two, two different sets of things to say that are in conflict with each other? Uh, and that's what, that's what Jesus, in effect, draws attention to in talking about this particular aspect of the man-woman relationship. The, uh, the, the Scriptures both um, implicitly rule divorce out and also implicitly approve of it. You can't fit divorce in with Genesis 1 and 2, but it's presupposed in Deuteronomy 24. What are you going to do about that? Jesus says, ah, you need to see there's a difference between um, what God said from the beginning, what was, what was designed to be the case, what's God's vision, and uh, what God says uh, in connection with the fact that human hearts became hard. God did not simply um, say, this is my vision, this is how, have to, this is how things have to be, and then when you can't live up to it, say, okay, you're on your own now. Um, God makes allowance for human sinfulness in the kind of things that, um, that God tells people to go and do in light of human sinfulness. Um, and so uh, a lot of the um, edge, I suggest, is taken off uh, a lot of the passages which really uh, frustrate, hurt, annoy you with regard to the position of women. When one sees them... Uh, as uh, being given for your hardness of heart, of being given as ways of coping with the fact um, that there is sinfulness in the world and we need uh, ways of working with it. Um, it's not then merely your prior commitment that determines the way you configure the data, which, in, which is, in, in different words, a question that a number of your postings raises. That is, you don't just choose which bits you like. Uh, that, 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 that it's all the Word of God, and we need to see how it's the Word of God and what it's doing. And we need to allow for sinfulness as a feature of New Testament as well as Old Testament, which is what these passages about, um, uh, about women's... Uh, so the, the passages you don't like about women's role are doing. More about that in a minute. Specifically, number two, Scripture works with realism about androcentrism and patriarchy. It's not then... Um, validating it uh, but it's acknowledging its existence um, and portraying both the practicalities that the need for practicalities that derive from that alongside the vision of how things were designed to be from the beginning which um, the Exodus and Jesus himself uh, reaffirm um, note the paradoxical status of Genesis 3 verses 14 to 19 uh, which uh, sometimes looks like a warning of how things will be, and sometimes look, looks like God's declaration of intent. 
Um, and therefore raises the question, as I've suggested already, about whether it's something to accept or something to resist. Note that number four, how the people of God and the church are the place where hardness of heart operates. Jesus isn't talking, when he talks about hardness of heart, about, as it were, the nasty pagan world. He's talking about the believing world. And you can see that in the New Testament, that where the Jesus issues arise are within the church. If you're going to, if we, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, this is another... I shouldn't say this. It's irrelevant. I'm going to say it, you can tell. Christians are so concerned to go and do things out in the world, get, campaign for justice and lots of things. If we're going to campaign for justice in the blooming church, then, we might, then the church might become the community that God wanted. And then, the, the, as it were, the world would solve itself because the world would look at the church and say, wow, we'd like to be that, like that, please. Number five, the value of the realism of scripture in helping women and men face facts, live with reality, and find strategies for that. And then number six, the importance of letting scripture critique our culture. A number of people raised the question, well, is it the question, with these passages, how far is their culture affecting what they say? And that's true, the culture is affecting what they say. But every time you say that, you must say even louder, but how far is my culture affecting what I say? And it, if we absolutize ourselves, because we think that we are Christian and that we think in accordance with Jesus and all that kind of stuff, then we're sunk. We can never make any progress. Uh, and it's really important that we all are saying all the time, 10% of what I think is wrong, the trouble is I don't know which 10%. And when we find the Bible saying something we don't like, that's when life really gets interesting. That's when the study of scripture becomes worthwhile. That's when there's something to wrestle with. Uh, and that doesn't mean you have to agree with it today or even tomorrow. But don't give in to the temptation to reckon that the things that you don't like are only there because of their culture. Because you have to remember that the things you don't like, you don't like because of your culture. Because we are so shaped by the culture in which we live rather than by scripture. An example is the one that I've just mentioned. To our culture, what happens outside the home, politics and business, <coughs> is more important than what happens inside the home. And so motherhood is devalued, so is fatherhood. And there's a whole other way of thinking uh, about um, personhood, family, work, uh, and everything uh, implicit in that different way of looking at things in the traditional culture that I was describing just now that has revolutionary implications uh, to push us into a, um, a more biblical, a more Christian, a more Israelite, and more healthy, more godly uh, way of being than the, than, the, than the one we are saddled with. Uh, okay, anybody want to ask questions arising out of anything that I said? Mm hmm. Um, it's the man with the apple. That, what happened to the apple? I ate it. So we're not going to listen to him, are we? <laughs> not only did he eat the apple, he's asking the question as well. Did God say we couldn't eat the apple? Though? You see, there you are. <laughs> I rest my case. <laughs> <laughs> um, my question is, so you said, um, you said that you know, Jesus and Paul didn't try to subvert the, the system. Oh, no, I hope I didn't quite say that. Uh, but maybe I put it... Let, uh, go on, you ask your question. Well, so whatever they didn't do, mm. why, are, why are we doing it now? Like, why are we oh, that's good. Okay, yeah. No, they did... Um, they did attempt to subvert the system. Uh, that Ephesians passage, my understanding of that Ephesians passage is Paul doing it, for instance. But they didn't try to um, pretend, that, to ignore the system. 
and they kept making decisions. At the, how radical should we be at this point? In other words, I'm, I'm kind of, I'd like to fantasize, I've never thought this before. Imagine that Jesus thought to himself, it'd be really neat to have six male disciples and six female disciples, but they're never going to be able to cope with it. Nobody's going to be able to cope with it. So I'm going to make a compromise at that point. Um, no, sorry, how, where did your question go? Or have I accidentally answered it? That was, yeah, that oh, that's good. Okay. <laughs> Oh, no, you didn't. No, I haven't answered it. Because, because you, you, well, perhaps there was more to it than you realized. Because, because I think, because you, you're a very clever chap being a, a, a snake. Because uh, the snake was really clever. I mean, it's this, this is obviously a snake skin, isn't it? I mean, let's look at this. Yeah, yeah. Now I've forgotten what I was going to say. Uh, yeah. Um, w one thing that will be true about cultures is that different cultures can make things possible that other cultures don't make possible. And we are blessed to live in a culture in, in, a, uh, in, in which it's possible for us to get nearer God's creation intention with regard to, for instance, the position of women um, than, than it's probably been possible in most cultures um, since Genesis 3. So, so living in the culture in which we live has monumental disadvantages, but it also has some big advantages too um, that yes so it's in some ways we find it harder to live uh, as it were up to the kind of standard that would have could have worked in Jesus' day in other ways we may be able to aim some, some higher we, we're always living with a tension I'll talk about this again when we come back to this in, in a couple of weeks there's a tension I picture it as um, what happens on top of the mountain and what happens at the bottom of the mountain and I think of that as Mount Sinai, where Moses is on the top of the mountain receiving instructions from God, and at the bottom of the mountain they're making the golden calf. And I think of it as God sitting on top of Mount Wilson, um, and uh, the terrible mess that in the Los Angeles basin that we're in all the time. And all the time, God is having to make compromises between how things look and how things ideally are. The sermon on the mountain, Jesus is giving the sermon on the mountain, and at the bottom of the mountain, as it were, the disciples can't heal that guy, that, that boy. Uh, Sorry, he's on the top of the Mount of Transfiguration, I mean. And at the bottom of the mountain, the disciples can't um, heal the boy. God, Jesus, we, are always working with the tension between the top of the mountain and the bottom of the mountain. But our job is always, as it were, to try to get a bit further up the mountain. Uh, and uh, we're always at different points in the relationship between those. Um... I just read two or three of the postings, I think. I'd include consideration of Mary when looking at those passages about women's roles and positions. I think her ability to sit at Jesus' feet and receive from him is significant. She's a friend of Jesus, and he commends her for choosing to be with him. Oh, yes. What does it mean when God says in Hosea 2, you will call me my husband, you'll no, no longer call me my master? Is this relevant to the topic? Yes, it is, actually, for the following reason. Hebrew has words for husband and wife, but it virtually never uses them. Nearly always, when you come across the words husband and wife um, in the Old Testament, it'll be the ordinary words for a man and a woman. So, so what? Um, so, so it's rather as the way it sometimes is done, particularly in African American uh, culture uh, with us. That he's my man, she's my woman. 
is the Hebrew way of saying, he's my wife, he's my husband, she's my wife. And uh, I think it's no coincidence that the reason why they do that, um, no, I've assumed this is the reason. No, let me start again. The words for husband and wife are literally the word for master and mastered, or owner and owned. It's actually the word Baal, as in the god Baal. The, 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 the god Baal's um, title, as it were, means master. And a husband is a Baal. And a, and a wife is a Baula, a mastered one, a lorded over one. Which fits exactly with Genesis 3.16, you see. The master and the mastered, the owner and the owned. Um, but only very rarely does the Old Testament use those words. It nearly always uses these words that simply mean man and woman. And, and I think that's telling, that's significant. Um, it's, uh, it's got a, an understanding of the relationship between uh, husband and wife which isn't adequately conveyed by uh, words that suggest mastering or ownership. Oh, what does headship, kephale, mean? Uh, there is an argument about whether in 1 Corinthians 11 when it says that the man is the head of the woman, um, it could mean in the sense that the, when you talk about the head of the river means the origin of the river and the woman is created from the man, he's her head in that sense. Or it could mean head on authority over the woman. Uh, and um, the New Testament scholars are divided about um, which of those is the appropriate meaning in the context. Uh, the 1 Timothy passage, I want to say one or two things about. My assumption about the 1 Timothy passage, as with the Corinthians passage, but the one, in the 1 Timothy passage the background is evidently worse, worse, is that a result of the terrific freedom that Christ has brought to people is that um, life... Uh, has gone totally chaotic in the church and over, overflowing into society. And that Paul reckons it's necessary to, to get things to cool down, to get control of things. Otherwise, there's simply going to be chaos, disorder, and disrepute in the, um, in the wider community. Uh, and so he is seeking to close things down in order to get a grip of a situation that gets out of hand. Um, yeah. Which, alas, is not our problem. I always like the verse in Joel, I will pour my spirit on my men and women. Yeah, that is a neat verse. It's like Deuteronomy in spreading um, the privileges and responsibilities uh, of being a person of faith equally both ways. I wonder why Mary doesn't have a book. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> I did. I knew that. Not forgotten. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, I noticed how quick I was to accept pro-equality passages as some form of systematic theology, i.e. transcends context, yet quick to attribute to culture if something endorsed some form of hierarchy, 1 Timothy 2. Um, 
that makes and now that's what that's us kind of preferring the things that we think already. We say, oh yeah, that's obviously the real stuff, and the things we don't like, <laughs> that's cultural. Uh, but actually, the things that the pro-equality passages are cultural. Everything in the Bible is all cultural. Um, Proverbs 31 likely addressing? That was an interesting question. I presume that the whole, the whole of Proverbs is addressed to anybody who needs to learn things, but actually it's especially addressed to men. So that's interesting, isn't it? Um, yeah. That, um, but it, but it, uh, at the same time, it's interesting, Proverbs uh, has a... In the first part of Proverbs, it describes wisdom as a woman. And in the last part of the last chapter of Proverbs, it gives you wisd um, wisdom embodied as a woman. And that then acts as a frame around the book, which quite often um, is rather more equivocal uh, about women and more focused on men and um, their and teaching for them. Okay, thank you. Goodbye. Um, do the thing for next week on uh, death. Oh, that'll be fun. <laughs>